You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Good afternoon. Welcome to M Pavilion. I'm really pleased to welcome you here today. And before we start, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we're meeting, the Yalakut Willem of the Boon Wurrung people. The Boon Wurrung are one of the five major language groups of the Greater Kulin Nation. And we pay our respects to the elders, past, present and emerging. We're really pleased to have, once again, Melbourne University Press here today with uh, Juliana Enberg in conversation with Louise Adler. Thank you so much. Louise is a, um, uh, an old friend of M Pavilion. And they're going to be discussing uh, Juliana's new book, On uh, Route, which of course is available here as well. And I would encourage you to take a moment, just juggle here for a second, to have a look at our program of events. We're halfway through our season now. And so we have about another 60 days, so about another 200 events, all free, crossing all manner of activity, and you're warmly invited to all of them. But now, please. It's a lovely venue. Do you need a microphone? Do we need microphones? Yes, yes, yes. We do. Okay, okay. The people on the side could move over there a little bit. Yeah. Juliana is already directing proceedings. This is going to be quite a challenge. You know, because otherwise you're swivelling. Yes, I know, I know. We're swivelling, we're swivelling. Okay. Well, I'm delighted to welcome Juliana Ingberg back to the M Pavilion. My thanks to Sam for hosting this event today, but also to welcome Juliana to Melbourne and Australia after a hugely successful four-year period as the Artistic Director of the European Capital of Culture, which culminated in a year-long festival in the town of, and we've been practising this for about four years, I think it's Aarhus in Denmark. Uh, you, of course, everyone here will know Juliana is one of Australia's preeminent artistic directors for the 19th Biennale of Sydney in 2014, the Melbourne International Biennial, the Adelaide Biennial, and of course she was the artistic director of ACCA for over a decade. And of course she's now the current curator for Australia of the 2019 Venice Biennale. Please join me in welcoming Juliana back to Melbourne. Whoa! So I've got about 58 questions and the format for this afternoon is that I get the privilege of asking Juliana 48 questions and then I'll open it up to uh, questions from the audience. Uh, but first of all, um, you know, uh, you take your uh, courage in your whatever uh, when you work with someone like Juliana whose visual literacy and aesthetics are of such high order that MUP, well, basically we just had to yield to this. Um, so Juliana... My She's godchild. already directing, directing proceedings. Looking for her mother. Yes. Yeah. Your godchild will find her mother, I promise. I promise. So, first of all, can I ask you, why Apple Green? Because it was a very important and lengthy discussion from Australia, from Melbourne, from Carlton, all the way across Europe. Why Apple Green? I think it's a positive colour. Um, I don't really know, Louise. I just I thought uh, <laughs> Apple Green would be sort of nice and it was cheery. And, and friendly, and um, but then of course I hi. Uh, then I thought it looked a bit like the Australian colours, which was a bit disappointing. But then we we fixed it up with the um, mango bl- yellow, <laughs> mango yellow. And I we think we make books all the time, but never heard of mango and yellow. And I think until it stands out <laughs> nicely amongst the purple and so forth. It's you know, beautiful. It, but I was speaking to a designer yesterday, or no, the day before in Sydney, and he said never ever have a green cover. It never sells. And I said, really? <laughs> it, w- it would have been helpful to know that a couple of months ago. Anyway, never mind. Anyway, never mind. Is so it selling? It is selling. Oh, so, good. to get everybody in the mood <laughs> so people understand what this project was, I would like to ask you to read the first 
few pages. Yeah, I'm not a good reader. I'm sorry. However, you'll manage. I could read Magda's bit. That's the first page. No. Oh. No. There you go. <laughs> and I apologise to the Irish people in the audience already. <clears throat> GPS navigation systems are mostly useful, but not nearly as engaging and anthropologically interesting as the way we use to navigate. For instance, a while ago when we were visiting a friend in the outer tip of the southwest corner of Ireland, a place so small it has no name except the appellation near, our helpful instructions were heaven sent, to say the least. No, not the use of stars and galactic things. It was a route described in statues and, and grottos. Turn left, wrote our friend, at the Blue Virgin Mary. Then go a few miles until you come to the White Virgin Mary and then turn right. Go along a while more and then when you come to the Virgin Mary in the grotto, turn left, I think, as she turns the page. In the end, and some 15 Virgin Marys later, we entered a dirt track that led to our final manger. Hallelujah, as Leonard might say. If we'd used the GPS, it no doubt would have sent us along a magenta-highlighted route and occasionally picked out a McDonald's or the nearest petrol station. But it would never have given rise to the amazing revelation of the Immaculate Mary route, which, of course, says a great deal about Ireland and our host, as well as allowing us to imagine the probable assistance the divine provided to toddling tipplers who, perchance, stared in amazement at the glowing mother as they swayed in an Irish night breeze over many millennia. Well, I say millennia, but that is perhaps a poetic concoction. The Marys situated on the corners, in grottos and on pedestals, popping up here and there and everywhere, dotting the Irish highways and byways, are more generally modern Marys than religious relics of times past. Most of these Marys materialise as a result of Ireland embracing with a fervour unmatched by most nations the Vatican's year of the Marian. Marys galore were sculpted, ordered, painted and deposited on roadsides, on corners, in parks and randomly about to help keep the goodly folk of Ireland focused upon the divine and practice their faith. Of course, there was also an unfocused moment when, in the 1980s, reports of visions and movement and talking from the Mary statues grabbed the ardent in a grip of hysteria and attracted worldwide attention. Perhaps a little too much. Visions, smissions, said the... Over the page. Visions, smissions, said the Vatican. We'll have none of that Irish jiggin and such... Cease and desist immediately with the miracle malarkey. People will be thinking that we're reaving lunatics or edicts to that effect. Can I, I think Keep that's enough. No, uh, that's enough. It goes on and on and on. There's quite a lot about GPS. And stuff. It's so tedious. Um, so perturb Oh, no, I, I don't do the Irish accent now. So perturbing was this situation that scientists were enlisted to find a reason for this misapparition. To wit, they suggested dramatic backlighting and optical blurring from staring to lo too long at the divine representation had caused an optic oscillation in some folks' eyes which created the impression of movement. Whether a tipple or two was involved or not is but conjecture. However, my imagination is not too far off the plot, only fanciful in a calendar sense by a few millennia or so. Although it should be mentioned, such sightings in Ireland are not entirely modern. 
the apparition of Our Lady of Knock Shrine in County Mayo back in 1879 displayed not only a gleaming incandescent vision of the Blessed Virgin, but a good gathering of appearances in the form of St. John, St. Joseph, and of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. At the time, the sightings were considered genuine and trustworthy and were embraced somewhat enthusiastically by the powers that be for their mystical pull on the population post-potato famine. You're probably wondering if this is the phenomenon that gave rise to the knock-knock jokes, but that was more likely attributable to the porter in Shakespeare's Macbeth. Knock-knock. Who's there in the other devil's name? Another apparitional turn altogether. By the by, if you were female, Catholic, Irish or even not, and born in the Marian year, 1954, you probably had a pretty good chance of being named Mary or Marion, and if your parents were super devout, a combo, Mary Marion or Marion Mary, even the holy trifecta, Mary, Marion, Margaret. <laughs> the year 1954 was dedicated to all things Mariological, including pilgrimages, no doubt assisted by statues, cultural events and many sermons. A big hello to all the MMs out there. And now I can stop. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I get to thank you. Thank you. Okay, so it's just a taste and a kind of a taste of the book. This is part of a series we've it's created. It's much more entertaining if you read it to yourself. It's part of a series that we've created um, big ideas in little books or little books on big ideas. And Juliana had been away. She will read the questions even. <laughs> um, Juliana had been away for quite a long time and had been travelling a lot, as she had before she'd left Australia, but I thought that it was a very interesting idea and that we ask her to write one of these little books on big ideas. And it was, of course, Juliana who came up with the idea of writing on, 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 on route. route. And uh, we did have a little tussle about the en route, which breaks the form of the series, which is O-N, as opposed to en route. So we had a bit of a debate, but we yielded because it was quite cute, we thought. So when I wrote the Mary, when I read the Mary's uh, section, I did wonder, she's unbelievable, I did wonder um, whether you were the driver or the navigator in this project. The navigator is here. The navigator is here. So you're the driver. I'm the driver. I mean, yes. what? <laughs> yes, you are the driver, yes. Look, I'm a terrible passenger. I'm really a, I'm a shocking that. passenger. <laughs> Who would uh, have guessed? No, and no one can drive me, really. Not, 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 if they, not if they, you know, want to sort of get through the whole journey without feeling just terrible because I, I break, I, I scream, I flinch, you know. I mean, it's just a nightmare. So it's better if I drive. I'm also an excellent driver. So, um, do you plan before you set out? Do you um, see where the road is going to take you? How yeah, you... we plan and, and then, I mean, the thing is you have to modify. You have to kind of be prepared to go with the flow a bit. So, a recent example is I booked a hotel in what I thought was actually a quite achievable distance from our um, uh, first site. But, in fact, it took us 48 hours to get there. So, um, you know, sometimes we plan, but the plan goes a little bit sort of awry. And that's when navigation becomes interesting. And I think it's, it's some of our sort of exciting, interesting and, and fabulous experiences have come as a result of 
being prepared to get a bit lost and also being prepared at a certain quite sensible time around about 4.30 p.m. to say, you know what, we're not going to get to that destination. Let's, let's book ahead to something that we can actually aim at, <laughs> uh, which, you know, takes all of the sort of peril out of it and takes away the, um, the opportunity of an argument, really, which would be against oneself for planning so badly in the first place, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, I think it's, it's, it's good if you can just relax with those things and, and that's quite interesting because I think a lot of people you know, decide something and feel that they then have to actually achieve it. Uh, my father was like that and he was terrible. Uh, and so, you know, he would definitely plough on into the middle of the night without a, a hotel or a motel booked until we were all completely frazzled just because he couldn't get, you know, his brain to turn off the thing that, you know, said he was going to get this thing. It's better to be a little bit flexible and just kind of, you know, go with the flow a bit. And then you can start to enjoy the journey which is the important thing. Otherwise, what's the point of the journey? So you talk about wayward finding and yes. meandering. Yes. And is this part of how you see travel? Well, I do. I mean, absolutely, unless you're on a schedule. I mean, unless you've got some kind of business commitment. But, of course, that can go awry too. Uh, it's, it's nice to actually enable yourself to simply explore and to see something that you didn't expect to see. I mean, recently we just spent a very entertaining hour with a crow. It was, it was really just tremendous watching this crow. It was so entertaining because the crow was so smart. And uh, we, we got, I'm sorry, Janine, uh, we gave it some apples. Uh, Janine is a friend of ours, I know. Uh, Janine is a friend of ours. She's very, very anti that. Anti-crow. Don't do that. It's very bad. It, uh, it, I'm not saying that you should do it at all. But the crow was so clever. Um, it took all the bits it wanted. And then it realised that it had quite enough of the apple already, but it didn't want to actually sort of let go of the other bits that were there. So it took those little bits of the apple and hid it in a tree and then it put all of the stuff in front of the tree. So it, like, it made a little hidey hole for it. I just thought that was brilliant. And, you know, that gives rise to a whole conversation about, like, how clever birds are. And, you know, then you look up about birds and before you know it, you've got a whole essay about birds and, you know, it's, it's very interesting. And this is how you learn. Uh, I think these serendipitous kind of encounters enlarge your brain enormously and, and, you know, just take you to a different place you didn't expect to be exploring that day. And that's the same as travelling through different environments or going on byways and, you know, off the highways because, you know, you, you then go, oh, what's this thing here? Let's look it up. And, of course, that is the great thing about... She's never going to get to a 57th question. This is the great thing about uh, the GPS and the, and the handheld devices. You know, the curious mind will ask the question, what is this? And you can immediately, you know, Google it and get an answer and then you can have a fantastic conversation about that too. So travel, I think, you know, can be just so much more entertaining than we used to do it a while back when we were kind of just ploughing along without the opportunity of, of asking those questions and, and diving into all sorts of, you know, extranea and, and miscellanea. But, you know, it, it makes, the, makes the journey very interesting. So we'll come back to the GPS because we have lots to discuss about the GPS um, and GPS as you've known and loved. But I wanted to ask you about meandering and the idea. Um, I know you as a great curator, but I also know you as a wonderful writer. And I wondered how you thought about the subject en route and the way you might structure this little book. I thought of it, I, I really thought of it as a conversation. I thought, what would it be like if you drove with me? If you drove with me, we would have that kind of conversation. I would start off by saying, 
oh, you know, uh, let's turn on the GPS and I'd have some sort of um, fight with it. Uh, and then I would start to talk about, you know, the way we used to navigate and, and how that was much more anthropologically interesting. And then I would go on and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and by the end of the journey, which would have taken about 10 hours, you know, we'd have tra travelled over all sorts of topics and things. So I hoped that I would actually structure the book somewhat like a monologue conversation. Uh, and I also wanted to use the structure of the GPS itself, which tends to want to take you back to a point. So I would allow myself to meander off the point for a little while and then I would correct myself, as per the GPS does, uh, to get myself back on route, as it were. Uh, so that was the structure. Uh, and I suppose and Max Gillies is here today, the excellent uh, Max Gillies, uh, would be able to tell uh, us that this is what is true at the moment. But the Odyssey is, you know, taking a, uh, a new look at itself through wonderful translations, the first female translation in English, actually. Uh, I do recommend it to you. It's lovely. Uh, but I was thinking of a kind of odyssey sort of uh, process as well. I loved the classics when I was younger and I liked those sort of storytellings that take you on journeys and where you encounter certain things. And uh, I, I think this is somehow how we understand um, our growth to some degree. And it's not surprising to me as we're in a kind of um, turmoil at the moment. I mean, we are in rather confused times politically, etc., that we are going back to some of these structures again and trying to wayfind our way uh, to somewhere else. So, you know, I was thinking about those kinds of things too. I'm not suggesting for a minute that it's like the Odyssey. Uh, it's very small. Uh, but, but that was the sort of structure that I was thinking would, would sort of work for a journeying book, which is basically this is a journeying book with stuff in it. So you've been journeying for a very long time, in fact, all the way back to when you were little Juliana in short pants at the age of eight when you were making <laughs> maps, in imaginary, imaginary maps. And I wondered if you could take us back to little Juliana and what she had in mind when she was imagining maps. What were, you, what were your maps about? I thought it was amazing that well, you I were think doing Well, I think maps are very interesting, mostly because they're, they're fairly deceitful. Uh, I mean, of course, you know, cartographers would somewhat disagree with you. Not all. Mark Monnier, who writes very brilliantly on maps, would actually tell you that maps lie a lot. Uh, they rearrange space. They sometimes have, you know, different topographical information to what is actually there. And, you know, Mount Kosciuszko is a good example of that. But I loved maps when I was little. And I took great pleasure in creating them, drawing them and, and decorating them and imagining a, a sort of, I suppose, a different kind of world. Uh, it, w it also gave you great power over places. So, uh, you know, if you draw your own maps, which are entirely sort of fictive, you can put whatever you like on them uh, and you can create scenarios in your head for the participants on the map or the inhabitants of a place, etc. It's a nice, interesting way of thinking about community and what amenity might be there and all of those sorts of things. So I really enjoyed that as a kid and, um, yeah, I don't know why I didn't go and study geography, actually. Maybe that's what I should have done. Instead of art, that probably would have been better. But, um, you know, it's, it's always an interesting thing, I think, to think of the way in which space, place is structured, you know, diagrammatically. I am a diagrammatic thinker. I mean, people would always say, you know, it's interesting, I have a whole drawer of your drawings. Uh, my colleagues from Acker would remember that, you know, plotting a, a, an exhibition, I would always draw something first. If I'm in a meeting, I draw a diagram. Uh, if I, if I, 
you know, am at a dinner table, I will always draw something. And George Dukakis, who's here, she's got a drawer of them too. Um, so, you know, I think it's, a, it's one of those visual means I had to understand a world. Uh, and also, I think, you know, at, at a certain time in my life, I simply wanted to create a world. Mm -hmm. I think actually that's also what curating is. It's about creating a world mm -hmm. in a different sort of way. It's assembling a whole bunch of stuff that's not your own. Mm -hmm. Uh, and turning it into something completely different, like I did with Tempest, mm. which I don't know if anyone here saw, but it was an exhibition I made down in Tasmania, uh, based loosely on the idea of the Tempest uh, play by Shakespeare, but looking at the component parts of that play and then going and finding artworks that somehow represented that component part. So, you know, quite f sort of, in a, as a sort of super fiction, I had a, a dueling couple of... Um, uh, piratey people and things. I mean, it had nothing to do with Tempest, but I created this other kind of uh, picture of Tempest, I think. Same, same sort of thing. It's a different kind of mapping. Mm -hmm. But the map, it sounds to me, and of course I'm not a, I'm not a diagrammatic person, I'm a kind of narrative-based person, Text. as if those imagine, imaginary per, uh, maps were a way of telling stories. It's not just the pleasure in the diagram and placing, you know, and creating a destination, creating a kind of, you know, ma a, a way through something. But it was also, wasn't it? I'm asked this question. Wasn't it also a way of telling stories? The yeah. map making. Yes, yeah, spatial stories, of course. But it was also very important to get the shading right. Uh, you know, I mean, I worked a lot on that. Actually, all the shadings Derwin around that. Absolutely, Derwins were very important very to me. Important. I bought a Derwent a week. I had saved up my pocket money and bought a Derwent a week until I finally got the whole set, and then they gave me the box. <laughs> but I ran out. What was frustrating is that you always ran out of white and black before you could actually get the next colour. That was annoying. So, you know, I, I had to go back a few times to sort of replenish the black and the white. But then I finally got the whole box. Yeah, so it was a big day. It's a big day. <laughs> so to the um, sort of contempt, to the now It's not in the book about the Derwins incident. It's not in the book. It's not in the book. But the imaginary map making at age eight is in the book. It's in the front. I made the map in the front. You did indeed. It's actually the people who I was corresponding with that the week. The end from, papers from are a email. Juliana map. Um, <laughs> One of our colleagues, one of our um, the people you and I have associated with over the years, um, had great pleasure in when when GPSs first were invented, and he was absolutely beside himself um, that the G the GPS would say, "You have now arrived," and he felt he had arrived in yeah, more sad, senses sad, than one. Very sad. Very sad. Very sad. So your first encounter, we won't mention who he is, but, no, but to we say nemesis might be to give you some <laughs> sense of what we were dealing with. But um, he took great pride in having arrived in both senses of the word. Mm. However, your first encounter with a GPS is in LA. Now, I must say, just before I ask you to tell that story, that my own um, travails and travels in LA were being directed by my sister-in-law to go to CalArts, to visit CalArts. And she said, oh, it was very easy. You just, you'll, here's a map, a Google map. You go north, south, east, west. And I found myself on the freeway having to stop at every single, I think they're emergency, emergency phone boxes and, and ask the guy, whoever he was, could he please assist me to get to the next part until he actually said to me, do not call me again. <laughs> you know, this is not a free directory service, a free um, a mapping service. This is prior to GPSs. So now tell us about Mrs. Uh, Mrs. L.A. Roxanne, or Miss L.A. But I must just say what a disappointing thing when you finally arrived at CalArts because it's so apricot. It's, it's, so it's apricot. a very dispiriting colour. It's, yeah, it's it quite is. horrible. It um, 
No, my, my, I, this is when I actually really became quite devoted to the GPS because I, I don't dislike them. I actually think that they're extremely useful, but I have some issues with them. Um, but the very first one that I used was in Los Angeles and, and she was a very abrasive uh, kind of character and it was very first generation uh, in a way. So it, was, it wasn't smooth, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't you know, a very personable voice, it was much more automated, much more robotic. Um, and she was inclined to say, you know, turn left, left turn now. And she would never give you enough, you know, chance to do that. And so it was extremely nerve-wracking. Uh, and I, I, you know, she and I just, just we didn't get on, actually. Uh, and I would be screaming at her and she would be, you know, return to the highlighted route. And she was very <laughs> impatient, you know, return to the highlighted route. Like I was trying to frustrate her. And it was like, you know, honestly. So... Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I called her Roxanne and, you know, after a bit we sort of we made peace with each other, etc. And eventually, of course, I learned the route. I learned a better route, haha, than she, uh, you know, because I knew that the best route around was through the Trader, jo Trader Joe's car park and she didn't know that, didn't compute, haha. But the thing about the GPS now is they cannot recognise, like, a donkey track versus a road. So they can take you on very weird journeys. Scary. Uh, very scary indeed. And Marcella, who was um, your my... Favorite. Your favourite? No, she's not my favourite, oh. I don't think. Oh, I yeah. you were very fond of Marcella. Maybe. She was a bit confused. She might have been on <laughs> the grappa. I think she was she on was the grappa. Anyway, <laughs> Marcella. Marcella took us, you know, happily zipping along in the, you know, Campanile. Um, but then she sort of misrecognised this road that then pitted out into a donkey track and then took us all the way to an absolute... I mean, it was a perilous edge. If anyone knows the Italian job, this is it. And we were there, really... I mean, it was terribly scary. So I said to Kay, who's here, the navigator, I said, look, um, why don't you just get out of the car and I'll, I'll just turn it around. <laughs> and she said, how are you going to... There's nowhere to turn. I said, no, but if, if you just get out, um, I, I will just do that. Because I thought, if I go over the cliff, at least there'll be somebody there who can, you know, like, ring the police or something like that. And also not both of us will be dead. So, you know, but I did do it because I am, as I mentioned before, an excellent driver. Uh, and, uh, you know, it took a lot of infinitesimal three-point turn directions and off we went again. But it was scary because she just didn't, you know, she couldn't. Well, she's not a she. I mean, obviously, she's a technology, but still. Uh, you know, I tend to personalise mm. them because I don't really want to be told what to do by a machine. So it makes it easier for me if I can sort of think of her as being like just poor Marcella, who's just a bit, you know, probably distracted. Maybe Mario is off having an affair. <laughs> who knows, you know. And she sort of loses the plot a bit, etc. So um, this is how we entertain ourselves. Right. The minute we get in a car, we turn it on. We try and get rid of all the freeways and everything else out of the system and then we think, hmm, and who's this one called? Ah, this one's Constance. Uh, you know, and, and then we elaborately create a, a persona for Constance who probably went to Italy as a young woman with high hopes after watching, you know, three coins in a fountain or something like that and, you know, wanted to marry, you know, a beautiful Italian, stallion kind of... Didn't really happen, got stuck in Tuscany somewhere, wears, you know, sort of long 
kind of dresses and sandals and stuff and, you know, makes a bit of a buck by sort of sitting there and telling people how to drive here, there and everywhere. In my mind, there's a whole swag of these, particularly women, up there in the ether somewhere who are, you know, assigned people like, oh, okay, Marcella, can you please take these people there in, you know, near the Riviera or something like that and, you know, you, Constance, can you take these people who are in France? Yes, if I must, you know, and, and then they get impatient with you. It's and like, what about Ms. Ms. Bodell from who's been partial to rye bread and herring oh, of well, Denmark? Bodel. Bodel, sorry. Bodel. Well, <laughs> yes. Well, Bodel, I think, is actually channeling uh, her namesake, who is Queen Bodell, uh, who was married to Eric the Good of Denmark, one of our kings. I say ours because I am part Danish. And um, she... <laughs> She, she was a very long-suffering queen, um, you know, a good sort, really, you'd have to say, because Eric the Good, not so good, you read the book and you'll tell why, but took himself off on a pilgrimage along with a great entourage of people uh, and, and he died in uh, Cyprus in a little kind of town called um, Paphos. And I was there in Paphos because it was one of my duties to work with Paphos during the European Capital of Culture program. They were our sister city. And uh, we came along to a sort of a, a ruinous part, a kind of, you know, archaeological spot. And here was this little plaque to Eric the Red of Denmark. And it's like, what the Dickens is a, is a you know, Danish king doing being buried in, you know, Parfos? So that is interesting. So I went and looked up, you know, Eric. And everybody back at the ranch in Denmark at Aarhus were very surprised to know that they had this, you know, far-flung Dane um, back over there. What were you asking about? Bodel. Oh, yes, anyway. So Bodel. <laughs> and the herring. Yes, there's this very nice new uh, freeway system just outside of Aarhus, between Aarhus and Silkeborg. Uh, a very pretty little place as well, mostly for retirees. Anyway, they've spent a squillion of um, Danish tax dollars on this amazingly beautiful uh, freeway system that looks a little bit to our eye like Woodmarsh from Melbourne here. Uh, you know, could be a little bit of Danish plagiarism, we're not quite sure. Anyway, there's a point in that journey where the, the GPS just goes completely nuts I mean, it's telling you to turn right on the freeway, turn left on the freeway, turn this way on the freeway. And it's like, you can't go anywhere. We're on a freeway. And then she stops. So she just stops. And we, we, get, we kind of figure that she's, you know, gone away to sort of, like, repair her frayed nerves or something. And she goes for such a long period of time that, you know, we, we then decided that she'd gone off on a Danish lunch break, which are very, very long indeed. Uh, very, very mandatory as well. And if you don't do them, you're considered something of a peculiar sort of person. Um, yes, and possibly having a little bit of uh, rye, rye bread and herring and akavit to, to sort of, you know, just... just Get it, get, get it all sort of sorted. And then she sort of comes back quite cheery around Silkeborg, where she's a little bit more familiar again. But no, it, 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 it gives her conniptions. It's terrible. So this book, we'll come back to this book in a moment. <laughs> this book comes at the end of a remarkable period um, of you as um, artistic director of the European Cultural Capital, Capital of Culture. European Capital, capital of, of culture. culture. And I wondered if you tell, well, for a couple of questions. First of all, what the project was, and two, what it was like an Australian, even with Danish, kind of, you know, um, a Danish father, what it was like entering into working after years of working in the Australian context, albeit with international, you know, artists in great detail, but what it was like working there in Denmark. Okay, there's a lot of questions in that question. Uh, briefly, the European Capital of Culture program is uh, a year-long um, 
focus upon a place, a city, uh, using culture as a kind of um, uh, a lens through which you, you view everything or that you lift something through. Uh, it's a very, very clever scheme run by the EU. One of the reasons it's extremely clever is that it gets cities really involved with itself. Uh, there's a bidding process and so cities have to bid in to become uh, the capital of culture. And in doing the bid, they actually already decide to become cultural. They also already decide to spend quite a lot of money on culture and they already decide that they want to bring that kind of attention to themselves. So it's actually a very cl clever self-help scheme through cultural means. It's a very hard project to do because, of course, it has uh, tremendous uh, importance to the local people. Uh, there will always be a, a sort of tussle between the international content and the local content. Uh, there is a tremendous amount of anxiety attached uh, to the way in which you might see your city being seen by others. A little bit like Melbourne in 1956 when we got the Olympic Games, we worried hugely that we would be um, you know, considered provincial and not very up to task. And so we decided to raise the level of our city height for the buildings. Uh, this is why we have skyscrapers now and not the low slung buildings that we used to have because we didn't want to seem unsophisticated to the people that came here. So it's a very nerve-wracking uh, process for a city to go through. It's really... Um, embarrassing, actually, if you can't find someone in your own midst to run such a thing. That's considered like, ugh. And it's so tough because almost every city encounters a, a problem. They generally have two, three, four, five uh, people in my position, program director, artistic director. It is just, it is really a tough, tough gig. So it was brave of Aarhus who decided that they could actually cope with the idea of not only a half day, and that's me being their program director, but they also had a British-Australian woman being the CEO, and that, that was very brave indeed. But it was a good decision, I think, in many ways, because it is a massive programming uh, task. You do kind of need to know what you're doing program-wise. It's not necessarily a festival, so it's, it has a different kind of approach to it. It's a, it's a very multi-form kind of uh, creature. Uh, it requires tremendous negotiation between parties and people. You have to answer the international expectation, the national expectation, the local expectation, uh, and it's very hard to please all those people. However, you can do it, and it's, it's a very, very interesting uh, task to have to do. Um, and it was, I think, uh, very successful. Aarhus is considered now by the EU to be a real model uh, par partly because I think we worked extremely successfully with 19 other regions in our midst. And that's no mean thing either. That's not one city, that's 19 cities, 19 mayors, 19 councils, 19 everything else. So it was a very, very elaborate shape. Um, but of course it, it made a lot of sense because that, that broadened the scope of the thing. It also was a... Sorry, this is very long. Uh, it was also very interesting because we were able to broaden the concept somewhat of culture to mean also creative industries. I know you're not very fond of that phrase, but it was, it was, um, it was definitely a very important part of what we did was try to help creative businesses see that if they worked with the culture lens and worked in tandem with and in cooperation with and collaboration with other people, that they would expand their own sense of what they did. And one of the great results, I think, that we had uh, when we did our impact study was that all of the businesses came back and said, we did stuff we never thought we would do. 
We did things and made things that we never thought we would make. And we've, we've changed the way in which we actually start to approach doing stuff. So that's brilliant. I mean, you know, I can also tell you about uh, how many people came, 11.5, la la, all of this. Businesses started up. Uh, in, in every respect, the KPIs were, were met or, you know, exceeded hugely. So it was a very, very successful one. And the EU kind of go to people now, look at what Aarhus did. Uh, and see if you can, you know, somewhat replicate that or get that going. I'm really sorry to tell you folks, it started to rain. You're here for a long time. Um. <laughs> can I ask, I'll, I want to come back to the experience of working in Denmark, but the relationship between Aarhus and what you were doing there with Denmark, you know, you talked about 19 regions mm. that had to be incorporated into this activity. What did the project in Aarhus, the city, do for culture in in Denmark, and I guess my second part of that question is, do you think it's a model that would have any um, resonance here, would work in Australia, kind of the regional, the city that's not the capital city that becomes a kind of cultural hub and, anyway, what do you think about that? I mean, yes, and I should have mentioned, thank you for the prompt, it, it's these days, um, unlike the beginning of the scheme, which was has been some time going now, uh, they generally choose either second or third cities, uh, based on the opinion that they formed quite early in the piece, and that is there's really very little point making London the European capital of culture because, of course, it is one of those and, and you, whatever you would do would just disappear into, you know, everything. So they choose smaller cities to bring them up. It's a part of decentralisation thinking, which is brilliant, actually. What it did in Denmark was very interesting, and I suspect that this is duplicated in many different ways in lots of different places. But for... Quite a lot of time, Copenhagen were like, Aarhus, who cares? You know, like, what, what do they know about culture? We are culture. We are the capital. Everyone knows, you know, Copenhagen. But then, of course, uh, we launched our program uh, and we had some neat things in it, like Anoni and uh, Philip Glass and, you know, all sorts of bits and bobs. Uh, and they were all of a sudden like, oh, oh, what's happening in Aarhus? Uh, and then, of course, international papers started talking about Aarhus, New York Times started talking about Aarhus, etc. The Guardian started talking about Aarhus and people started to realise that Aarhus, in fact, was a very interesting alternative. If you want to have a true Danish experience, maybe you go to Aarhus instead of going to Copenhagen. So Copenhagen got its knickers in a complete twist at this point and they started to be quite aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it was very interesting because they felt a little bit threatened. They'd had this, you know, space to themselves for a very long time. But, you know, this is, I think, part of the brilliance of the scheme. If you can elevate some of these slightly smaller cities up, you actually, you know, send your population out. Uh, it's viable. It makes it a, a good alternative. And what it would do is actually stop this uh, terrible, you know, urban spread and growth that is... It, actually not very sustainable over a certain period of time. So, you know, I think that... that what was the question? The question <laughs> was whether the model might work of, you know, the European oh, that's right, that's right. culture, capital, capital culture. Are they raining? Is it raining on my books? Uh, they're, they're moving. Uh, it's raining on my books. They're raining on your Don't books. Don't buy... Dis discount for water, damaged <laughs> copies. Um, would it work here? Okay, it's an interesting question and people often ask me that. One of the things that... Uh, it makes the European capital of culture really interesting is that even though Europe is a smallish place, it has very distinctive cultures and uh, nationhoods within it. So Denmark, for instance, is not uh, Germany. You know, Denmark is not France. Denmark is also not Sweden. 
or Finland or any of those other places. It has a very distinctive culture of its own. I wonder if we are different enough in our various places around Australia for that actually to make sense. Maybe, but I think you might have to structure it somewhat differently. I think it's worth a try because I do think actually that it's a very interesting stimulus for uh, regional development in particular. I think I would prefer to see it work pretty much the way it does in Europe, and that is a bidding process. Because one of the things that's so important in that process is, as I said before, already the city commits. Already the city decides to actually use culture as a, as a kind of catalytic uh, moment. It starts to decide to actually put money into that culture. It starts to build its infrastructure in order to create that moment down the picture uh, and so forth and so on. So, I mean, in that respect, I'd love to see something like that happen here. I think it would actually be brilliant. Would we have enough variation in our delivery? I think that would be the thing. But that, of course, is the business of the cultural cur curation. Uh, you could probably start to bore down in there and find the stories, etc., that make some sense of that. But certainly, you know... Um, it, it works extremely well. So, and working in Denmark, mm. I mean, you've had some in, in private discussions, hilarious um, stories about um, what it was like to work in Denmark. Tell us a few. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, I mean, the Danes do work quite differently to us. You know, Australians tend to work a 56-hour week, more or less, more probably, uh, with the advent of emailing, etc., at night and weekends and holidays and things. Whereas the Danes tend to work a very small amount of time uh, and live a rather bigger sort of life. It's not a very boisterous life. It contains, you know, children and lots of eating. Uh, uh, but, you know, it, they, they spend a very, very small amount of time actually at the office. So, for instance, my first day in the office... I'm buzzing around like a blue-ass fly. Um, you know, meeting, 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 meeting. And I come back into the office and it's empty. And I said to the one colleague left who'd come from Copenhagen, actually, uh, Rena, where is everyone? Is, am I supposed to be in another meeting? And she said, no. And I said, well, where's everybody gone? She said, yes, they've gone home. I said, it's 3.30. Th and she said, yes. I said, is it like some special day? She said, no. <laughs> they do that every day. I said, seriously, they, they do that every day? She said, Yes. And I said, okay, the, how's that going to work then? Good. Uh, you know, but it did work brilliantly because one of the things that I really realise about the Danes is they work incredibly efficiently while they're there, very efficiently. They will not, however, answer the phone after hours, pick up the emails on the weekends. You may not actually legally contact anyone if they're on maternity leave, sick leave, holidays, whatever. Um, so it's, it's very differently structured to the way we've allowed work to completely consume our lives. And I have to say, there's something to that. Uh, I think actually we, we, we need to re-examine how much we've decided to give ourselves to work and how little of the rest of our life we've decided to, to deal with. Because I have to, have to observe that they are a happy-ish people. Not very demonstrative. I mean, flat, you could call them. But, but they are happy in themselves. You know, their inner hygge is well intact. Uh, so, you know, I mean, it, it is very admirable the way they live their life. They are modest people. So they are not, you know, constantly trying to acquire. They're not as, you know, voraciously interested as... Yeah, they're not consumerist. I mean, they have one good chair, iconic, Arnie Jakobson or something like that. You know, they have a kind of formula for living, but it's, it's quite small, it's modest. They live 
in an easy fashion with themselves. They bike everywhere or they, you know, walk everywhere because their cities are actually still able to be navigated that way. And that is very sensible and that is very ecological. And one of our key values was sustainability and it's very easy in a city like that to maintain uh, that attention to that value because it's, it's easy to get to places, you know, things are well served uh, and you're not making too much mess, you know, because you're, you're, you're actually in, in a symbiotic relationship to the environment that you're living and working and playing in. So, uh, you know, a lot of that is, is highly admirable. They are annoying, though. Uh, you know, I'd, ha I'd have to say on the register of annoyance, it's quite high uh, because, you know, some of the things that we just sort of normally take for granted as a sort of polite transaction, for instance, saying thank you if someone opens the door for you or lets you go past you or whatever, no. Uh, because it's expected, you know, that's, that's your right. Of course you go through or I go through or I don't stop for you or whatever. So, we, you know, sometimes they can be a little bit sort of like... Mm. Uh, Decision-making? Decision-making? No, you... Yeah. <laughs> yes, that, well, that was the other thing I had to get rid of. Uh, <laughs> they like a lot of meetings. Uh, and the very first meeting that I conducted, as, I, as my... Many of my lovely colleagues who've turned up today would attest. I like to sit at the top of a table. I do that mostly so I have a visual of everybody and I can see what everybody else wants to do and say and if someone wants to say. However, in Denmark, you don't sit at the top of the table. So I sat at the top of the table and my uh, associate said, really, Juliana, at the top of the table? And I said, y yes, because I'm conducting the meeting. She said, at the top of the table? I said... Yes. Okay. Um, well, look, I better just tell you now, I probably will stay at the top of the table because that's, that works for me. And they were like, that's, you know, it was fine. Eventually they got quite used to that. I also stopped them bringing in, you know, rolls, cheese, um, you know, any number of things to eat, which took up like 20 minutes of a meeting time. I also stopped them going around the table and introducing themselves to each other again. Uh, I said, look, seriously, if you're going to do this each time, I'm coming in 15 minutes later. Uh, you know, I also reduced the time of meetings down to about 15 minutes because there's an awful lot of preamble. There's also a lot of kind of later sort of chit-chat and polite stuff, blah, blah, blah. So, that you know, that was a bit alarming to them, but we did get a lot, we got a lot done, which was good. <laughs> <laughs> you said you didn't... Ma I remember you saying, I think you said that um, you don't make decisions. No, in a you take a decision. Take a decision. Yeah. <laughs> I said, I haven't got enough time. I'm sorry. You know, we've, we've got a cultural year to put together and, and we have to do that now. Someone is going to have to be responsible for something. But it's not the Danish way. It is a consensus-driven society. And look, that is very nice as well. I mean, actually, that is generally a rather good way of behaving to take on board what other people want to say. But there is a point of which you actually have to sort of go with a decision because you can't keep eking it out until, oh, 2018 because your year is over. So, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it was challenging. But it was interesting. So I want to finish by um, reading... <laughs> that wasn't 47 questions. No, no. I know. Well, <laughs> but 47 answers, which yeah. is even more pleasurable. Um, <laughs> I wanted to be, uh, end by asking you, it's, well, it's really... The wind, uh, Magda, the wind is up as well. The wind is up. Um, uh, this is Magda Zabanski who wrote an endorsement for the book. Um, Evading Very the tight. tyranny of the GPS, Engberg, Engberg leads us off the beaten cyber path on a delightful, thought-provoking and at times very moving analogue mystery tour of everything from Viking pilgrims to ancient or orreries to the Vietnam War and the incipient... Orreries. Mm. 
and the incipient perils of Plenty. AI. Along the way, like some genius bowerbird, she lovingly curates a treasure trove of eccentric historical, personal and sociological gems to reveal deep, enduring truths about the unholy union of the human soul and machines, as well as the rich fruits to be had from losing one's way. Engberg is a humane and generous guide. Most importantly, though, she reveals the real meaning of Huga. Now, could we finish my series of questions by asking you to tell us what it means? Well, firstly, I want to say that was a very generous reading of Magda's and I want to thank her very much. She's not here. Uh, Huga is not, as the British and American commentators uh, insist, cosy. Got nothing to do with cosy, nothing to do with, you know, chenille and warm things. It has to do with an inner kind of calm. I'm not, I'm not fussed by things. I'm very at one with things. It is actually a rather sort of um, spiritual uh, thing. Uh, which is different from hoogily, which is very boisterous, has a lot of wine and alcohol and akavita attached to it and uh, often leads to babies, <laughs> called Eric. Uh, so hoogah is actually a more spiritual thing. Actually, to be honest with you, it's Norwegian and the Danes stole it. <laughs> That'll do. <laughs> You don't have to have a book. It's all right. You don't need a book. She really wants to read the Eric section. But I no, think no, that... No, we're, no, no, I don't oh, want to I, thought you I just want to have a book because I gave... You, you have to. You can have my book. Um, but now I, I'd like to open it up to questions from um, you oh, in the audience, in the chilly audience. Kate... Let's make it short, folks, because everyone's getting cold. This will be, yep. uh, I've had the pleasure of travelling with Juliana often in vehicles where she has been driving. <laughs> and I have noted Juliana does not like... If we're, say, going from a studio to a gallery, you like to go there one way, but you insist on another route back. Yeah, because I get bored. Yes. I is I that just, it? Is yeah. it? I've always wondered what... I, don't, I just don't like doing it. I think it's really, like, unsuccessful uh, if you go one way in the morning and then go the same way back. Like, what did you learn? Nothing. Also, actually, it's, it's interesting because psychologists talk about the need that we have to, to have... I think it's at least five or seven episodes within journeying. So if you've seen those episodes already, it's like watching a rerun. So that's not interesting at all. So, yeah, I do. And it drives Kay nuts because, um, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll take the long way home. Uh, but, you know, I get to see other things and, and I think about other things and I think it's really refreshing. <laughs> it's refreshing for the mind. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for driving with me. I've loved it. She survived. <laughs> Any other questions? No, they're, they want to go home. They want to go home because they're freezing. All right. <laughs> Okay, well, um, I'm sorry? I'd like to know how you reconcile the complexities of consensus meetings with the efficiencies of the Danes. How I reconcile the complexities of... of consensus meetings. Yes. 18 people participating yes. at whatever. Yes. Lunches, Use the mic. Put the mic closer. Lun lunches, sandwiches and whatever. Yes. Yeah. How, how and then I... the Danish efficiency you refer to. Home at three o'clock, done. Yeah, it is, a, it, is a, it is a paradox because, as I say, they work extremely efficiently when they're in the office and they do get things done. So, it, I mean, it, I don't quite... I can't explain how it happens, but I do know that I did put some structures in place that actually enabled it to happen. 
uh, because I think before I got there, they were in a bit of a muddle. Uh, they were sort of a, a little bit in their sort of consensual cesspool, uh, and and they couldn't quite see their way to a sort of resolution over certain things, and and that was alarming for them. I know that was a big thing, and people, I know behind scenes people were saying, "Have you met with Juliana yet?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, and they, and they started to talk about post Juliana, so you know, uh, <laughs> like you know after the after the apocalypse uh, but you know it was it was it was it was a it was an interesting task because I think intrinsically it is still very good that they have that you know emphasis on understanding and listening to each other and wanting to wanting to get to a place of consensus because that means they've got a mandate to drive things forward and if you don't have a mandate to drive things forward then it could you know ravel back quite quickly uh, pardon me it gives weight to the decision. And, of course, you know, I suppose part of the thing with Denmark is it is a highly bureaucratic society. Uh, it's, it's not feudal, but it's also quite hierarchical. Uh, and, you know, interestingly, because there is this idea that it is extremely equal, but it is also pyramidal. Uh, and that was interesting. And because this is a, a very political project, because it is a government uh, project, plus it is, you know, very much m the money of the people... Uh, you know, you, you have to be attentive to those things too. So it was a it was a it was a balancing act. But at the end of the day, I had to simply be domineering. Uh, so you know, and uh, when I when I got the job, they did a sort of IQ kind of EQ thingy on, on me, and they came back and said, "Oh, your results are fantastic." But there is there is just one thing about you that we're a little bit worried about. It's uh, you you are very high on dominance. And I and uh, w would you like to comment on that? And I said. Uh, yes, I'm a leader. I have to be somewhat domineering, otherwise we won't get anything done. Uh, I said, but I also have to be a leader who is prepared in a domineering fashion to stand in front of my people and protect them. So, it, you know, it rolls both ways. And so they were quite happy with that. They start generally around 8.30 or 9.00 or sometimes not at all. You know, I mean... Uh, <laughs> They're charmingly honest as well. So people would say to me, oh, Juliana, I won't be in tomorrow, actually, because I'm cooking for my commune. And I'd say, and that's, that's my problem because when they go, no, but when you cook for your commune, you, you get the day off. And it's like, why? And because I have, to, I have to shop. And I said, so why didn't you prepare it on the weekend? They go, no, that, you just don't get it. Or they'd say, you know, I'm not in tomorrow because I'm putting the snow tyres on. Or, you know, things like that. But then I kind of got, you know, happy with that because I, at least they were telling me and they were honest. They weren't like, oh, oh I'm, I'm really sick and I can't come in today and then you see them down the shops. You know, I mean, they, they the were The Australian just, sickie. No, nothing like that. Very honest. You know, I'm not coming in because I'm not coming in. I have something I've got to do for me or for my family or whatever. And the process is very much that you say, that's fine. I did kind of start to say, it's fine, but do please let me know because your other colleagues need to know and we need to sort of know what we might have to cover for if we've got meetings or things of that sort. And that was a bit of a revelation to them. Oh, you know. So. All right, we might um, close the session now, but please join me in thanking Juliana Engberg. Thank you. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.